Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. Seven billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. So, April, I don't know if you agree with me, but tailoring is one of those evocative fashion words that brings to mind both an item of dress, so like an impeccably crafted and finely fitted suit, for instance, but also a very specific place. And that is because, dress listeners, tailoring is synonymous with the globally renowned Saville Row in London. And this unassuming street might at first glance be indistinguishable from, say, hundreds of others in the bustling city upon first appearance if it were not for what its buildings literally and figuratively house. And that is the history and the heart of the English bespoke tailoring tradition. Yes, and that is because the suits produced on this street are inarguably the most coveted in the world, a reputation the street has earned ever since becoming a tailoring hub in the 19th century after Henry Poole, the so-called father of Savile Row, expanded the tailoring premises he had inherited from his father, James Poole, in 1846 to include an entrance at number 32 Savile Row. And Henry Poole still exists today, proudly offering the same level of excellent service and master craftsmanship offered since Henry's father opened his first tailor shop in 1806. But Henry Poole is not the only Saville Row house to come with its own extensive history and heritage, nor is it by any means the oldest tailoring establishment on the street. That designation is reserved for Ede and Ravenscroft, who proudly claims the title of, quote, London's oldest tailor and robe maker. And the origins of the business actually date back to 1689. So they obviously (laughs) relocated to the street (laughs) much later. But um, yeah, super old establishment. So while this tailoring street and profession comes with a long and prestigious history, today's guest undeniably represents its future. And we are so pleased to welcome Eden Ravenscroft Taylor Jihae on to the show. She joins us for a behind-the-scenes look at her craft, shattering many preconceived conceptions about the profession along the way. G, welcome to Dressed. G, hello. How are you today? Hello, Cassie. Thank you for so much for having me on the show. I'm a huge fan, and I've been so excited. Oh, I am so excited to talk to you. I'm a huge fan of what you do, and I can't wait to hear all about it. I actually think you are... I don't think I know you are the first tailor on our show. So very excited to talk to you. (laughs) What an honor. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, of course, I would love if you could start by telling us a little bit about yourself and perhaps share some insights into your formative relationship to clothing or textiles. For instance, do you have an earliest memory that sparked your interest in clothing or dress? Uh, absolutely. So my name is Ji Heian and I am a Savile Row bespoke tailor, more specifically a coat maker. And I am currently in employment with Eden Ravenscroft. I have been tailoring for about five, six years, including my apprenticeship. I would say my earliest memory was always my mum. Um, I'm sure everybody thinks their mum is a superhero. But uh, 
my mum always said she wanted to be a fashion designer and um, she had kids and it just didn't happen for her. And she used to draw sketches and we used to colour them in. Or she used to uh, make us little outfits out of like leftover fabrics. And I would always tell her, I was like, oh, don't worry, I'll do it for you. I'll be a fashion designer. And I don't know when that turned into something that became my own, like not just doing it for my mum, but it definitely, I always had a really clear path of wanting to become a fashion designer. And lo and behold, I didn't become one. (laughs) I actually became a tailor. But yeah, I was convinced I wanted to be a wedding dress designer for the longest time until I went to university. And I decided that fashion seemed so subjective. And also my friends were coming back with such horror stories. Of working in the industry? Absolutely. You know, like sleeping (laughs) on the table at McQueen or, you know, they wouldn't let you go home for days when you were working on the show, that kind of thing. So I ended up um, choosing the practical route of uh, tailoring. And if you're going to do tailoring, why not double row tailoring? So what appealed to you about tailoring? Because going from wedding dress designing to tailoring could not have been the easiest. I mean, maybe it was an easy transition. I don't know much about construction, admittedly. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, it was a pretty easy choice to make. But I wish I could embellish it and say it was a much more romantic story. But somebody described it to me as, it's like learning a trade. They were like, a plumber is never out of a job. A woodworker is never going to be out of a job. Um, learning something so from the basics upwards in sewing, like tailoring, you'll never be able to work. And maybe it's my immigrant mindset, <laughs> but it really encouraged me that this was the type of creativity. I wanted to be creative, but this was the type of creativity I wanted to get into. I think I described myself as I couldn't, I need three walls to balance off and the fourth wall to be something I can break through. But if you gave me like no walls, I'd be a bit lost, Um, like having tradition, heritage and rules and some form of of things I can build upon in tailoring. Um, It really appealed to me to that I could get better at it with years. And I saw people doing it for 10, 20, you know, like their whole lifetimes. So I think in that aspect, I found it really encouraging to become a tailor and not be so subjected to change I think it's the timelessness that appealed to me I still kind of go back to wedding dresses sometimes though (laughs) it's romantic (laughs) (laughs) yeah I think they're both romantic in their own way because the tailoring tradition has this long 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 history as we're going to talk about absolutely something you've stepped into and by working on you know just a little street called Saville Row in (laughs) London you work for one of the most prestigious firms Eden Ravenscroft. Well, as stated on their website, they are uh, known to be the world's oldest tailors, <laughs> established in 1689, and they do have a timeline. So I think it was a mixture of the wig makers and the robe makers, son and daughter getting married, um, that established Eden Ravenscroft. But they must have been firms way long before that as well. I'm really proud of their heritage. Before working at Eden Rosecroft, I actually uh, worked at a tailor's where I did my apprenticeship called Tom Sweeney. And I went freelance for a while, which allowed me to have my pick of houses that I worked for. So there was like Huntsman, 
Kilgore, Montague and Mead, or Davies and Sons, Norton's and Sons that I worked for. These are all tailoring shops you worked for? Yeah, that's all on one street that I worked for. Eden Ravenscroft was one of the places that I worked for. And I just had a huge draw to it because the head cutter there, Chris Potter, he really drew me in. He like taught me a lot. He used to be a coat maker himself and then progressed into being a cutter. Um, and I'll explain to you the all the different roles in Savile Row later on if you want me to. He really explained to me the difference between Eid is that we focus on graduation, robes and legal dress. And he was like, oh, if you come work here, um, if you do, like come in, then there's going to be so much more work and so much fun stuff. And by fun stuff, he means things like velvet tailcoats, dinnerware, tuxedos, white tie, um, black tie, all the things that aren't like maybe normal dress. But he, he just really drew me in. I love that they have this long tradition of making wigs there as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that was super unexpected. <laughs> so we ha- actually still have a wig department and uh, a robe department. And the wig department, I wasn't even aware was that existed until I got to the headquarters. And it's like a room full of women. It's an all-women team. And it, when I say hand-stitching, I feel ashamed to say that I do hand stitching in my coats because every single bit of their work is hand stitched. I have the benefit of using a sewing machine every so often, but they still curl horse hair uh, by hand and by ironing rods that look like, you know, that they still existed from the 18th century. And the tradition of making has, hasn't changed since the design was established um, in the 18th century. It's a lovely room of all five women um, sat around and they all construct little aspects of it and then pass it on to each other until it's completed. It's a beautiful handmade process. It's so cool. I've only witnessed it when I worked in theater, but it's very much the same thing as that, or an opera, I should say. They do it individually by hair. They pull it through this net one by one. It's an incredibly intricate process. It's really beautiful to watch. Um, And as you said, entirely by hand and something you yourself know very well. You've talked a little bit about your apprenticeships. Can you talk about what it was like to be an apprentice? Like how many hours do you need as a tailor's apprentice before you move on to the next stage? Right. I think I had quite a unique opportunity because um I met my teacher, Julian Mumper, who literally changed the course of my life after I met him. Um, He was a very strict and firm teacher. And when I used to bring him work, he'd be like, is this your best work? Or if it's not your best work, don't bother bringing it to me to check. And I would be absolutely terrified. But um, I think he taught us very fast. So like traditionally, apprentices are like 16 17 18 they come straight from school and you're expected to spend three to four years in coat making um and I think maybe the years vary if you're a waistcoat maker or a trouser maker but um as a coat maker that's how long you were expected but for me I just came from a degree doing a three years degree in fashion atelier which was quite focused on making anyway so I kind of thought I would have a little bit of a step up, um, but actually I was really wrong. <laughs> I was retaught everything that I learned at university. 
but it, it took me about rough it was under two years like one and a half years I think and I think that's extraordinarily quick but I think that was from my teacher kind of going hard on me because I, I told him like you know three years worth of education later to be on apprentice wages is something it's really hard in London um and sometimes I find it really sad because it's the most common question that's given to me on Instagram is like do you recommend an apprenticeship like how do you find one how do you get through it and it is low wages and I couldn't have done it without the help of my mum giving me like the extra 20 pounds here and there to get through the week uh, while surviving on like beans and loaves of bread (laughs) (laughs) so like I was really really keen on to finish my coat making apprenticeship so I could earn some real money as a coat maker so money was a motivation and I got through it in about a year and a half I would say um the hours I'm not sure how specifically put amount of hours onto it I had like isn't there a mad phrase saying that you need to put like 10,000 hours into anything before you become a master of it yeah I'm not sure if I did put in 10,000 hours, but um, I definitely, I'd say throughout that year and a half, I didn't really have much of a life. Uh, My focus was solely to, I had an additional job as well on top of being a full-time apprentice. So I could pay my rent in London. And that was a big motivation to be like, hey, if I can do other jobs, then I can actually tailor for like 10 hours straight or 12 hours straight. Like, I don't glamorize burnout, but um, it was a big motivation to, like, (laughs) get out of poverty. (laughs) And it sounds like that's the standard, too, right? You have to apprentice if you want to work at one of these houses. Yeah, a lot of the houses still go by apprenticeships. And I, I personally feel like it's a great way of learning. You can watch as many videos and get your information, but... The things that I was taught were like so tactile. It was things like, can you, they would say, can you feel that amount of ease? Like it differs because it's this cloth because it's this weave and this is how much you can shrink and this is how much it won't shrink. And this fabric behaves like this. It seems like those kind of things can't be taught by watching, just purely by watching an explanation. So yeah, um, I'm a big fan of apprenticeships. I obviously hope that, you know, it would follow living wages in London so that we don't have to be cruel to our apprentices. But um, yeah, I'm, I know what I was taught, what I was taught was special. So I always think in the future, I will pass it on. Absolutely. Well, I'd love if you could share some insights into the tailoring profession and art form. Maybe you could take us from the beginning of making a suit to the finish. You have an integral role in what is really a team effort. So I'd love if you could illuminate that process for us. For us who don't even know how a customer begins to order a custom tailored suit. Right. I guess Savile Row, I felt it too. Like, just like anyone else, these shops are big and scary. and You feel like slightly peasant (laughs) when you're like walking in, but you do not have to be at all intimidated by these establishments. Like the people working there are genuine and they want to, they just want to have the customers to genuinely perform their own artistry or craft that they've been um, practicing for many years so 
I'd say that it is an absolutely a team effort and there's so many people, more people involved that I'd like to talk about rather than just myself as a coat maker. So when you walk as a customer walk into a shop, you may encounter front of house or sales um, or even the cutter themselves. And a cutter is the person that will measure you, will make your paper patterns and also consult you in what type of suit you want and what style, what practicality. They can give you a lot of advice through their experience. A cutter usually has an undercutter and that is their apprentice that they're training up. And then alongside that, they're with them, there'll be a, a team of makers. So a coat maker, waistcoat maker, trouser maker or bridges maker. And after the making process so like if I talk you through so if you were getting a brand new suit you would walk in get in a consultation you can go away or come back or on the spot get measured they will ask you to come back in three to four weeks and they would put together a first fitting so the cutter at this point would have cut the cloth that you selected and chalked it out um, from the paper patterns that they made pass it on to somebody like me I would make a first fitting. This means that on the first fitting, everything can be altered at this point. So that's where you see all these white basting, stitches, lines. These are temporarily constructed so that they can be deconstructed again to the fitting, according to the fitting. So you might have a second fitting and um, hopefully if there isn't too many alterations, um, then it can go get finished. But if it's not perfect, then we can go for another fitting. I think like two to three fittings on your first coat is not a bad going. I know that now with the clientele being quite international, that can be quite difficult. But um, we, I think two to three fittings is recommended. And I think quite often the customer really enjoys the experience of getting something really made and the cutter to understand their body and like, um, quite often people be like oh this is how I wear it or um, I sweat a lot more so we'll go for sweat guards underneath the arms or uh, the most common thing is uh, shoulders not being um, straight so we always have a drop right or a drop left about 50% of the time I would say nobody's body is um, symmetrical uh, once the makers are all done um, so we'll construct this piece by piece um so you might have a first fitting on the second fitting I might put some pockets in if we're confident with the pocket placement and then the next fitting I might uh, finish off the lapels and the ends of the cuff and then still put it back together and you can still alter different parts of it once I'm done with my coat making process it's a stage called thin bar thin all the constructions are permanent, but the lining is very loosely tacked on with the basing stitches. So the finisher fells in very small stitches, all the lining to the jacket, and then makes handmade buttonholes and does all the edge stitchings. And the buttonholes are really, really beautiful. And I recommend everyone looking up um, bespoke handmade buttonholes because it's such a feature of a coat. Once the finishes are done, they pass it onto the presser and quite commonly there's like only a few presses and all the shops on Savile Row uses them and the effect they can have on the finished garment is incredible and other people that are involved is 
people like cloth merchants or uh, the haberdashery merchants, the delivery, the runners in between the houses. Also, the tailors are quite often freelancers. And I'd say about 90% of tailors are freelance. And that's how traditionally they work. So you may be in Huntsman or you may be in Henry Pools, but you are allowed to take work from other places. So you can work from multiple firms whilst being established somewhere. I'm solely working for Eden Ravenscroft, but that wasn't the case before I joined them. And it's funny how um, people think that there's like house styles and that's it's really strict, but actually all the tailors are really versatile to any of the customers' wants and needs. And I'm guessing cutters would choose tailors that they want to work with because they're able to bring the construction that they feel complements that style. So whether you, whether you get your suit from like one shop, actually the tailor might be working from a couple of shops down the road. And you can see uh, quite often people running around with bundles, handing it off to each other. It's a very old way of working, I suppose. I still wrote my uh, invoices by pen and paper and I would hand deliver my garments with um, invoices. And it felt like a lot was happening on this one street and a lot of communication, a lot of uh, work being exchanged despite everyone thinking that it's one company separate to the next company and that we're all in competition, but actually it's more like a community. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say is it sounds like, and I know you're friends with tailors from other houses and there's really um, kind of a positive welcoming culture. Absolutely. I think in the past it was um, definitely a lot more competitive and I get a lot of my historical information about Savile Row from my colleague who's John Theodora. He's a Cypriot tailor and he's 78 years young and we share a room (laughs) together. And he tells me, you know, how it was since he was 17, that it was like a lot more tougher and there was a lot more coat makers. So the competition tended to be very tough um, and they were undercutting each other's prices in order to get the job. And I think there was this very much like upstairs, downstairs, routine of uh, the upstairs cutters being the governors and then you'd have to ask the governor for work whereas I think the demographic (laughs) of tailors has really really changed actually there's a lot of female coat makers now and um, what I found when I went freelance is like a really lovely community spirit like I happened to go into a workshop of three other women and you know they could have been we were all coat makers so they could have been a bit more secretive and and not told me a lot but like the amount of help um knowledge and uh warms I received and you know job they would pass on jobs to me if they were too busy or vice versa we really helped each other out and taught each other things yeah I'm moving along to cutters like I've made friends with a lot of the cutters and there's no barriers with this uh, thought of it being a competitive thing anymore. I think young people, especially social media, has helped open a lot of people up about the possibility of working together and that, you know, we all have this common thing of like really loving Savile Row. So why not <laughs> enjoy and embrace the community? Absolutely. Absolutely. 
You led me right into my next question. And I'm really glad you mentioned the demographic change because Saville wrote is famously associated with the creme de la creme of men's tailoring and men's tailor. But largely thanks to creators like yourself, we now know that women wear and make Saville Rose suits too. You have a wonderful Instagram account, which of course we will link our, our listeners to in our show notes. And one of my favorite parts of your Instagram on which you take followers behind the scenes of your work, it's really, really cool, is when you share posts that highlight the impeccably tailored suits you've made for yourself, which are just amazing. But this is just one of the many aspects you share with your 20,000 followers. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about what inspired you to share your work with the world via such a public platform. We've talked a little bit about it. Thank you so much. That's a, it's really flattering. I find it really flattering that people want to follow my day-to-day videos. And I'm still quite amazed that um, my little sewing videos, you know, like that we, there's so many people who enjoy it. Um, I think my first reason for setting up that Instagram was because um, there was an occurrence of like, I would spend, I think it takes me like, uh, like 18 to 20, eight hours to roughly make a coat and you know like I say it's a lot of teamwork but um sometimes the brand shiny men at the front of the house would get the thanks from the customers um and they would be like oh thank you so much for making my suit and I'll be like oh I'm down here (laughs) (laughs) in the windowless basement um so I think that's what got me started and also I think people would ask questions to me so often like oh how, these suits are so expensive that's crazy who would spend every ever that much amount of money on a suit and to me I wanted to be like oh well I want to show you what's inside a suit what looks beautiful to me so that was part of the reason because I wanted to show like I think customers do so much research before purchasing now so if they were to come across my page and they could see the work put in, they might appreciate their garments a little bit more or enjoy it a little bit more. But it's crafted and especially made for them. And, you know, they have little people like me downstairs making it just for them. <laughs> <laughs> I really, it's partly that and it's partly a daily diary to myself. I actually used to keep a cutting of every single jacket I made a little fabric sample but then it got so big and it kind of got difficult to like keep up with so this was this is kind of like a personal thing that I do to keep on top of like the different coats I make it's had a really positive influence on my work I feel like it's kind of made me want to show other aspects of coat making and the details and like I and personally I want to evolve and make each coat better than the last one but it has come with it's like negativity as well sometimes um with Instagram I think I've had people steal my pictures or claim that I work for them that I work in their workshop oh no um, <laughs> <laughs> or like I'm not sure if other tailors get this too but like I don't think like my male counterparts get it as much as sometimes I receive some like misogynist like oh why are you getting involved with this um or like slightly racist comments but like it's so far outweighed by the positives which is like I have I didn't realize how important 
representation could be. Um, and when I have students contacting me and say, I want to be a Savile Row tailor and they look like me and I hope I, I helped a little bit towards that aspect. So yeah, like it's, I love doing it and it's made me up my game. It's made me be aware of um, things I want to do. And also it's encouraged me to express myself in tailoring by making suits for myself Um, and hopefully encouraging other women to wear suits too because it's just fun and it's quite powerful. I guess if I go back to what was one of my formative experiences, I think it was when I was first got into my internship I was wearing a very cheap suit from you know like a high street retailer and I was out with all the company of guys and they were all wearing bespoke and I think it made me appear like I was wearing a bespoke suit because of who I was hanging out with and I was desperate to cut my own suit and um, wear bespoke as well but obviously it wasn't something I could afford at the time and it was that experience of feeling like, oh, this is why men do it. Like when I was doing fashion theory at university, they were like, oh, what is the suit? And we did it into quite depth. And they were like, is it confirmation or is it actually something that you can change a very small amount of and it be a very, a, a flair to style. And I find it that um, for women wearing a suit, it, it feels really, I'm like, this is why men do it. it you can feel quite powerful in it. Um, I feel I feel like I can understand why they wear it. It's comfortable. You're treated differently, which is awful. Like no one should be treated badly or better because they're wearing a suit. But like I did feel like I was going from a young woman who often get mistaken for being younger to being very respected, and I quite like that feeling. Yeah. Well, you're, you're also talking about being empowered by this suit because a lot of the way you're being treated is probably because of this aura you're putting off because you feel so confident <laughs> in, in this suit that you've yeah. made. That is the, the feedback I get quite often from customers is that you hold yourself differently when you have something that's especially made for you. And I love that feeling. I, have a, I made a wedding suit for a friend and I particularly love making wedding suits. And this was a friend who really, really helped me out in London. So when they got engaged, I made them a suit. And when we were doing, having these fittings, he was like, oh, I think I'm having a little princess moment. I feel like a little princess <laughs> in front of the mirror, whereas like his suit's all basted up and you know, we're going around and like clipping little bits and pinning it so that it matches him a little bit better. And he was like, oh, I'm having a princess moment. And that made me feel really good that I'm not a doctor and I don't actively save people's lives. And But like I'm doing work that makes people happy and feel the best in themselves. Exactly. And you're enriching people's lives in, in this very tactile and tangible way. So in closing, um, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation. What does tailoring mean to you? I would say it was my found medium of expression. It was the springboard to the rest of my career. So I don't know where my career can lead to next. But like I said, being a tailor has given me a really good foundation of sewing to for me to be like, I can take on most things. Like if I look at things, I want to make it. And 
my boss is super supportive and he's like, come on, let's have a go at making that and test you through your paces. But I think tailoring, most of all, has given me a big identity and it's a found connection between me wanting to be more British maybe uh, when I was a younger person and I hadn't found my identity as an immigrant in England, but also being able to be comfortable with my representation within this industry is something that I've, I'm really grateful um, that I found tailoring. Absolutely. I really did struggle with being like an immigrant and but being raised in England and um, I didn't have much connections with Korea. And then when I joined Eat and I started working with John, my colleague, he kind of told me that when he first started in tailoring, like when he was 17 in like the 50s and 60s, actually it was like the Italian and the Polish tailors that were always uh the powerhouses of tailoring and then it became the greek and cypriots and he was like and then there's this whole new demographic of tailors and i think that was a full circle moment for me when i realized actually for something that's very very british it was always being powered by immigrant tailors and there's me and him who's a cypriot british tailor in a room um you know handcrafting these garments that are meant to be like great representations of Britishness. Yeah, absolutely. And you're changing, literally changing the face of tailoring by being on this public platform of Instagram. And like you said, just showing the this power of representation to children that look like you who can now say, I can be a tailor. I can be a tailor on Saville Row. Like nothing is outside of their reach. Um, and that's largely thanks to people like you showing them that anything's possible. So Really, really wonderful what you're doing. And we're all going to go out and follow you if we are not already. Uh, Gee, thank you so much. I'll try and put much more interesting and fun content out there (laughs) relating to goat making. I really enjoy doing it. And it's become a wonderful way to incorporate part of my day as a, because it can be quite repetitive goat making, as glamorous as it looks actually. (laughs) I am in a windowless room doing the same thing every single day, which I love, but it can be repetitive. So I'm glad uh, it's given a creative edge to what I do. Absolutely. And we are so excited to continue to follow you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, G, for joining us. Cass, that was a super fascinating insider's look at Solo Row. I loved it. Absolutely. And for more daily behind the scenes glimpses at G's work stress listeners, be sure to follow her Instagram at B underscore spoken by G Hay, and that's J I H A E. And definitely check out our Instagram this week at dress underscore podcast for some of G's content, which is going to be custom tailored just for dress. <laughs> I see what you did there with that pun. <laughs> That does it for us this week, dress listeners. May you consider the art of tailoring that resides in your closet next time you get dressed. We do love hearing from you. So if you would like to email us, you can do so at dress at iheartmedia.com. And if you have a moment and want to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, we always appreciate your support. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. More dress coming your way Tuesday. Tuesday. 
Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.